Well, good morning uh, from me. And um, just on the quiz on Friday, it's a general knowledge quiz at 5.30 here, but there's an observation round and a music round and a look at the silhouette of a country round and guess what it is. So you can do your homework for that. But do come for pizza and just a touch base with people on a social level. It would be great to see you. And um, here we are, uh, the most, probably the most famous Bible passage in the New Testament, John 3.16. Have you heard of it before? Yep, try preparing a sermon on it. It's all downhill because it's like the greatest Bible verse ever. But here we go. Um, the first half of my sermon, I think, might bore some of us to tears. Uh, some people might be interested, and I might confuse everybody. Well, mind you, I do that most weeks. But I just think that some things need to be said, and then we'll get to something more interesting, maybe. But um, in Bible college, I used to have debates with my lecturers. When we hand out tracts to non-Christians, why don't we just give them the book of Exodus or the book of Leviticus? Because the work of Jesus is so clearly seen in nice physical pictures and things that people would understand. And they would always say to me, Owen, you need to go to the more simple passages. And I'm like, well, what's that? And they would say, what would they say? John 3 16. And I would say, is that simple? It's got some of the most complex and loaded words in the history of like eternity. And we're going to look at them in like 15 minutes. God, world, son, given, belief. Are their words more deep and rich and more important? In there is also love and death in eternal life, but we don't have time. So let's break some of these words down, and the aim is to worship. Um, but it's not simple stuff. Question number one, how do you explain God? Like if we're giving this out in a tract, go on, just start there. What or who is God? You figure that out. I'm going to have a sip of water for five seconds. Who or what is God? Yeah. This is why we should be in Leviticus and Exodus just all the time, see? Because it's tough. When, you, when your neighbors say to you, um, well, who is God that you go to church and learn about? What do you say? Now then, at the moment, there are some unhelpful answers to that question, who or what is God, but they're really popular. And they start their explanations without Jesus at the beginning. And that's why I think they're not very helpful. But they are popular, and I'm going to list some of them and teach us about them because they're sort of helpful a bit, but then there's a more helpful way, which is the second half of this sermon. So if God, for God, love the world, God. Well, the Presbyterian forefathers, which we're sort of here because of, they wrote this, God is spirit, infinite and eternal, and then they write large paragraphs like that. And they base it on John 4, Romans 11, Psalm 90, and God is a spirit, sort of, and infinite, and eternal. But why start there? That's the popular but probably unhelpful place. Like your neighbor needs to know more than God is spirit, unchanging, infinite, and eternal. It's not going to get them here. That would be like like my boys, someone says, well, who's he? And they, you point at me, and my boys are there. What are they going to say first? Are they going to list my attributes? He is 13 stone. 
Is that what they say? He, he walks the dog. He kicks a ball. He has skin. He arrived in 1985. Now, but where would they go first? Come back to that, because that's the second half. But why do we start with the attributes with God, for God? I'm not sure it's causing so many of us to worship. Um, I read lots of literature and watch lots of debates, and there's lots of people at the moment that don't believe in God. And there's lots of people that don't like God. So there's atheists, no God, and now, now, since the 1990s, most people are anti-theists. They just don't like Him. They don't like churches. They don't like anything to do with it. And so clever people try to explain who God is to try and get them to change their minds. And I've got some of the unhelpful but slightly helpful explanations of God that they use. And I want to say it because it's everywhere at the moment and it might cause some of us to think and then to think in a better way. But I don't want us to think we're not thinking about those helpful ways. Right. So for some people, God is nothing more than this. And this might be us, and this is why God maybe wanted me to keep it in the sermon. God exists as, as a clever explanation of everything that exists. That's who God is. The clever explanation of everything. And there is some merit in that because He is. And the fancy word is He's the God of cosmology. He's just the first cause of everything. And the argument goes like this. And maybe you need to know this for your neighbors or something. Everything that exists has to have something that causes it to exist. Did you follow that? Something exists, something needed to be there before it to cause it first. Because out of nothing, nothing can come. See? So there has to be a trigger point to everything that we see. And there's some merit in it and... Atheists do need to grapple with that because that's a big one. At the moment, it's, it's popular in education to teach that particles just always existed. You don't need God anymore to explain everything. So we Christians in their archaic world years ago used to think that God created stuff, but now we know that instead of God, there was just eternal bits and bobs which one day clattered into each other. But the problem there is once you do accept that something always had to exist, something just always had to be, whether it's those particles or not, it's slightly illogical to say, well, particles could always exist, but there's no chance there's a God that could always exist. You just lose a bit of rationality along the way. And, and it is a bit irrational because particles are material and everything that we know in the world which is material has a beginning. But the immaterial, something which might be spirit in nature, might not need a beginning. And so the argument goes back and forth. It's quite credible to believe that God is the first cause of everything. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right, I've read that now in 50 books. It's all right. Let's not obsess over it, but people do. And if that is your view of God, but nothing more, Welcome to a relatively important part of the sermon. There's another explanation of God at the moment, and it's this. For me, God, in this verse, for God, He is the one who um, like made everything ordered. So He's not just the first cause, but everything's ordered. And there's real 
value and logic to that. Well done, everybody. You're relatively ordered. And you're relatively ordered, relatively, because there's an ordered God. And the fancy word is that, for that is the teleological God, or the teleological. And that means everything that you see has an order. And uh, fancy people say the universe is just too complex to ever happen by chance. There's just too many things that work in order. There must be a creative, imaginative, ordered mind or God before it and in it and has a reason for it. So there you go, you're not without purpose, some people who believe in God say. And at the moment, there are some people who don't like God who say the universe is so mathematically impossible for it to just exist by chance and be this ordered. It just defies maths that everything we'd see works the way it would by chance in this universe. There's a current theory which say there must be like an unlimited amount of universes just like this one. And so the chances are higher that one would arrive that's got an order. So we don't need God. But there's no evidence for any other universe than this one. And it's getting pretty loopy out there if you like reading about the teleological reasons for God. And I remember being in the Pendragon pub growing up. I wasn't a Christian, but I used to argue with people using that argument that there was a God. It wasn't an intrusive God because I would carry on getting leathered and live the way I want, but I sort of appreciated that there's order, so there's probably a God. Are you bored and lost? Well, I've got a few more. There's, there's lots of people that say, for God, he's the ultimate good. Like there must be a standard outside of ourselves built into us somewhere. There has to be, because we know right and wrong. You wouldn't know right and wrong unless there's an outside right Otherwise, you just get lost in like social chaos of deciding what's right and wrong. And then you've got problems like in Nazi Germany when they sort of come up with the idea that a certain group of people are subhuman. Well, what's the outside reason to ever say that's wrong if they came up with it collectively as the morals of the day? Because if we say it's wrong, we're just using the same methods we do, collectively coming up with the idea that it's wrong. But... That's inconsistent because how can we say they're actually wrong because they're just doing what we did? Well, who knows what's right and wrong? There must be something outside and great and beyond and who's written into us that's saying certain groups of people are subhuman is wrong. And that's quite a good one. And at the moment, I get worried because I listen to the pop stars and they say, you know right and wrong by just being bored and living the way that you feel. And that's right. Lady Gaga says it. You're on the right track, baby. You were born this way. That's how to know everything's right in your life. You're doing right. Just be you. But the problem is, I was born lazy. And if Rita goes, why didn't you do the dishes? And I say, well, I was born this way, baby. <laughs> What's she going to do? She's going to throw the dish at my head. You can't just go to like some subjective reasoning all the time to justify everything. It's crackers. I'm on the right track. I'm impatient. Owen, why were you impatient with me yesterday? Again, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. It falls apart. And so there are some people for God, and there is merit in it, and it's worth thinking about, that he is there, and he's dictating what's right and wrong. Of course, that gets really offensive, because when he says we've got to live a certain way, and we say no, there's a problem, and someone's wrong. And that's why people don't like the idea. But plucking things out of the air, not a helpful 
way to live. And if you want to come and chat on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday about other things linked to that, like, well, as long as you don't cause harm to anyone, and why even that is a really risky way to live, for example, if my wife is pregnant and there's a complication and I have to break the speed limit to get to Heath Hospital, and on the way, the revving engine, which is so loud, scares a pensioner, and I cause her harm, but if I didn't go, I would have caused her harm, well, you're in a bit of a pickle. Even defining what's harming or not, we're in a massive pickle at the moment in the West, trying to figure that out, and we're actually erasing a lot of stability that has gone before, and I think you know that, and I think there's a call to consider, is there a God who might have a say on these matters, but we move on, because I think all of that misses the point of this little word that apparently is a simple verse in the Bible for God. Now, there was once a man called Bishop Leslie Newbegin, and he was a missionary bishop in South India for many years, and he would paraphrase an African theologian called Athanasius, and he would say this in his paraphrase of what Athanasius used to teach. The only system of thought into which Jesus Christ will fit is the one which he is the starting point. So you're like, my view of God is morals. Athanasius is like, no, don't start there. My view of God is that he's the explanation of everything. Ah, Athanasius doesn't allow you to do that. Go somewhere else. The only system of thought into which Jesus Christ will fit is the one which he is the starting point. Where's Jesus in all that modern explanation of God? That's the worry. That's why we can do better. And in the Bible, there's a Bible verse, and it says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says this. Through Jesus, we believe in God. Through Jesus. Not cosmology, not morality, not teleology. Through Jesus, we believe in God. And Jesus Christ revealed God. And he called him what my kids would call me if you asked them to describe me. Father. That's the go-to place for God so loved the world. Father. That's where Jesus started. And we start with Jesus, and he starts with Father. We don't worship a God who was eternally lonely, on his own. He was forever a father, outpouring his love onto his son through the Holy Spirit. We worship a father who is potent, vitalizing, and loving, even before the creation of the world. And that's where we start. And when you read the Bible, even from verse 1 of page 1, this father seems to be pouring out his love upon his son, and his son is teaching people in the Old Testament as the angel about his father. Then in the New Testament, he's born of Mary, and he's still teaching people about his father. And the father uses all his power to talk about his son. And he sends his son to go and find sinners. And to do what with sinners? Bring them into the family of God. Forgive them their sins so that they too can then start to say, Father, that's our God. And the best the Father in this verse, our God, can do, what's the very expression of His love? Here's another verse. Here is love. 
that God loved us and sent His Son to be the sacrifice for sins that we all need. God hates sin. God judges sin. God wants to destroy sin. Why? Because He's a Father, and sin tears us away from Him, and He hates that. God gives us laws that we should be asking Him about. How should I live and spend my money, and what hobbies should I do, and what should I be like? But we ask Him that, and we trust Him. Why? Not because He just likes morals and creating stuff for the sake of it. Because He's a Father who cannot bear anyone listening not being his son or daughter. So he sends his son to come and get us. And now, in a much quicker way, the second word is world. For God so loved the world. The most common meaning for the world, the word the world in the book of John is this. The created but yet sinful and confused and messed up mankind. That's how John uses the word world. The created, but sinful and messed up and slightly strange group called mankind. Here's two verses to prove it. John 7 verse 7 says, Jesus, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Jesus looked at the world and goes, oh, what is going on? They're evil all the time. Then it broke his heart. Here's another verse. John 14, 16, 17. I will send you the helper, the spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. So there's a group of people who hate me and don't want my Holy Spirit, the world. So we're like a group and we're sinful and we're fallen and that's how he uses it. And he says in verse 18 here, we're condemned already. We're condemned. The world is condemned. It's all broken and fallen. Do you know, since leaving the independent scene and joining the denominations, all my minister friends, they ring me now because I'm out of that world and they can tell me all their problems and it won't go anywhere because I'm now like a sounding board. Do you know, some of my ministers have the hardest time and what I've noticed about them, now I'm not talking about me here, but um, they're, they're rarely rude to anyone. They talk with respect to people. They listen to people in their communities and churches, and they're prayerful, and they open their homes, and they share their resources with them. In my opinion, those ministers are often the least rude and most socially accessible and relaxed people often in their whole churches. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about my friends. I don't mind if you think that's the case with me or not. My wife keeps me in line, and I'm sorry for any sins I've done against anyone in this room. But by and large, my ministers are just that. But I also notice this about them. They're often the least liked people in their communities and in their churches, and often the most subject of negative feedback and talking. In fact, I tell you something, I came through the hallway this morning, and you know those little pictures of me and Rita on the, like, the cards, uh, the welcome slips? Well, some of them's gone through loads of them and scribbled my face out with a pen. And I'm like, well, why didn't they get Rita as well? How did she get off scot-free? So I had to put, had to put loads of them in the bin. But I don't remember having a huge argument with anyone recently, but someone's gone for me on the, uh, on the thing. Uh, I was scanning my mind, well, who's done that? Because I'm pretty sure I'm getting on with everyone at the moment. So, 
what's happened there? It's probably one of the elders, wasn't it? No, I'm joking. What's happened there? What's happened there? Why does it happen? Well, and it'll happen to you as well if this is the next part is true, which it is. They often, my ministers, friends, they stand for, a, for an ancient message, which isn't very popular. And so they can be as nice and helpful as they want, but there's this message which just ruffles people. And the message is what, John, what Jesus says here, the world is condemned. The world is condemned. Before a holy God, we're condemned. We're not cutting it. And that's never been popular. And that's why in a few pages' time, Jesus gets nailed to a plank of wood. It's not a popular message. We are condemned already. The world in this passage, apparently, loves darkness instead of light. When God is defined as the light, the world hates it. People say... Um, Religion is the lead cause of all wars. It's not. It's about 4% in world history. But what are, or what is, the lead cause of wars? People. Jesus spelled that out. People. And Jesus would also say this. Out from the heart of people come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And the problem is we get our hands on religion and use it to cause wars. We got our hands on sport and use it to cause mini wars or schools or politics and education. We wreck things. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only do I see it, but because I see everything else as well. It just makes sense now. I can see other things. And he'd look at the world and go, I tell you what, Jesus was right. We're not cutting it here. And lots of my ministers stand for that. I thank God for them because they stand for it because God loved the world. He loved the fallen mass of sinners who constantly mess up. And that's the next word, that whoever believes in him. And within this world, there are some whoevers who just realize they're not cutting it. And they call out to the Father to save him, and he does. And that's why we preach this message, because there's nothing better. When a person gets to this place, wow, I get it. You're now my Father. You sent Jesus for me. And they run to the Lord Jesus, and they say, Lord. And those people are called Christians. They're the whoever's in John 3.16. Whoever believes in him, they won't perish. They have eternal life. They embrace Jesus. They embrace the facts about Jesus and his word. And they live by their beliefs. And it's not blind faith. It's all based on Jesus. And what we know of Jesus. And what do they believe? There's the next word. He was given. He was given on a mission to save. And that's what we love. Save the fallen people. Uh, did you see the FA Cup yesterday? Um, Roberto Firmino, whenever he comes on the pitch, me and the boys go, hey, he's one of us. Do you know why? He's a Christian. And then when they lifted up the trophy, he took off his Liverpool top. Do you see what was on his T-shirt? The cross equals, and then a heart, love. He's one of us, boys. He's one of the whosoevers. He gets it. He gets that God shed his blood for sinners. He gets that we're condemned, but we can go free. 
because one hang on Calvary condemned instead of me. I remember watching Schindler's List. There's a chap, a nasty Nazi, called Amon Goff. And he's on the balcony, and he just takes his sniper rifle in the morning during breakfast, and he just starts picking people off below and killing them for morning fun. And later on, he has a conversation, and he says, They fear us because we kill them. We have the power. And someone replies, that's not power. Power is when we have every opportunity to kill and we don't. On the cross, Jesus Christ had every opportunity to call out a fleet of angels out of heaven and wipe out every Roman official butchering him to death. But he didn't. And that's power. Power worthy of trust. Because he was sent to save. To die in the place of sinners. So as we go home, we remember this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And our God is a father who sends his son for the weak for the lost, the sinful, for the dying, for the scared. If you've ever been the last pick in football, maybe because you were the worst player, if God was picking the team, he'd see our weaknesses and lack of talents and sins and faults, and he says, I will pick you first. I've come for you. Now look what I will do with you. The Bible says he no longer lists the sins in our life. Instead, he lists the hairs on our head. And he will walk with us every day of our life. For God so loved the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.